Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Grove, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend, and I'm super happy to be here. And I'm happy that you're listening. I hope you're healthy and well. If you're not, uh, I hope that you're getting well. It's weird times out there in the world with this uh, virus going around. I'm hiding out in my basement, trying to my best not to contact and come in contact with any real people. But through the magic of the internet, we can contact you, and we are happy to do it. Uh, anyway, you're, you found the fish nerd. We talk about fish, fishing, and eating fish. Show it always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. Today on the podcast... We've got a really weird show for you tonight. We have my favorite cephalopod expert, Rich Ross, on tonight. And to help me chat with him is the amazing James. And we're going to talk all things cephalopod. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about life, all kinds of fun stuff. This show is not for the kids. So if you're a kid, uh, don't listen. It's not that bad, but uh, you know, just you've been warned. Mom, dad, if your kid's listening, you've been warned. Uh, not appropriate for all ages. Uh, before we do that, we are going to talk about is it safe to go fishing during the times of a COVID outbreak when you're in a pandemic? Does fishing make sense? And so I've got a little help from a doctor who's going to help me with that. And of course, we'll have some fun. Um, after the show, we're going to test out a new segment. We've got the pond lady back on, and she made a segment for us, and we want your feedback on it. So we're going to put it at the end of this episode. So listen after the credits, after the theme music, and then email clay at fishners.com with your feedback. Do we need another correspondent? Do you like the content she's bringing us? How can she improve? Uh, I always love new people, so I'm happy to have her on board, but it's her first try, so I want to really get your opinion on it. Uh, but before that, I think it's important we to jump into our topics right away. And our first topic is, is it safe to go fishing during a pandemic? And so I contacted Dr. Ryan Gray, who's a podcasting uh, friend of mine, and he's a, he's a physician, and he's an educator, runs a whole bunch of podcasts. He wouldn't come on the show, so I'll do the voice work for him. But I assure you, um, this is how he talks. So I will, I'll do both voices, and you can just guess which one is him. Uh, I sent him a message on Facebook, and I said, Hey, you want to come on my pod? I need a doctor who can give recommendations on fishing during the coronavirus. Lots of opinions floating around. And, now, and this is what Ryan said. Dude, I'm stretched thin right now. We're going crazy. Is that, is that how he actually sounds? I say, yeah, I bet. No big deal. And of course, Ryan, no gray fun, says, final answer is stay at home. Smiley face emoji. I, I wrote ha ha, even though it wasn't that funny. Uh, and then he, course, he can't stop because he's a doctor. Obviously, the fishermen are like, what's the difference if I'm home alone or alone on a boat? And I say, right, and I catch a fish and never see a person or have to go to the supermarket. And Dr. Sucker of Fun Gray says, well, boats break and you need rescuing. Explosion people require them to save you versus a COVID patient. Of course, I'm very polite, because as always, because I am always polite. And I say, good points, Doc. And then, he, of course, he can't stop. 
People get in car accidents on the way to the lake requiring hospital services that aren't available, etc. Uh, and I say, okay, good point. So I'm not, I know where he's going. and I, I'm not interested anymore. He's probably right. Uh, and people have heart attacks when they catch the biggest fish of their lives. And then, ha ha, ha laugh till you cry emoji. And I, of course, write, ha ha, perfect. Uh, and then, of course, he shares a link to a Kentucky family that went missing in the Chesapeake Bay as an example of wasting resources. So he's right there. Then all caps, he writes, stay home. And then, uh, of course, I say, wow, can I quote you for this convo on the podcast? And he said, of, co- of course. Uh, and I said, I'm not, I, so now I'm trying to defend my choices to go fishing. <laughs> and I ask him, is it safe for me to walk to the river and catch a fish? Is it safer for me to do that than to go to the store for meat? And he says, if you're walking down there, there away from others, I like that better. So that's Dr. Gray's point on staying home. The, the long and short of it is you should stay home, especially if you're uh, just stay home. Um, but it's really hard to. And I think you're relatively safe going fishing, but maybe boating and traveling a long distance. Do things close to home, I think, is the best advice. Um, I, I, per, at a personal level, I think it's better than going to the store. Uh, the store is probably the most dangerous place you could be right now. And, of course, we've all been cleared to drive to the store, so why not drive to the river? That's my own personal thing. But the doctor says, stay home. And his website is uh, com, com, And I'll share links in our show notes. And we thank Dr. Gray, uh, Dr. Ryan Gray, for uh, <laughs> for his input here at the Fish Nerds Podcast. And we're happy that he did that. <laughs> but yeah, I think he's right. Stay home. This episode brought to you by Olukai, and we're happy that they're sponsoring us. At Olukai, we handcraft Hawaiian-inspired footwear, finding inspiration in Hawaiian culture and craftsmanship. Fishing is, the, is at the heart of Hawaiian culture today, just as it has been for centuries. Generations of fishermen and women expertly cast from rocky shorelines and sandy beaches. They spearfish, throw nets, fly fish, and navigate their boats beyond the reef and into the deep blue in search of the next big catch. No matter how they do it, there's an attention to detail and respect for the ocean that guides their passion. At Alukai, they believe in the same attention to detail when crafting the highest quality shoes and sandals built for every type of marine environment. Alukai's water-friendly Noheamuku slip-on shoe features razor sipping with non-marking rubber for extra grip on the deck, the dock, or the rocks, and designed for easy on-off barefoot wear. And when it comes to sandals that perform, Alukai's new Ulela provides the comfort and durability of a sneaker for those long days on the boat or on the shore. And uh, they sent me some pairs, and my wife, and we've been wearing around the yard. We had nice weather finally, and they are terrific. I often forgetting wearing I'm wearing shoes at all, which is great. I, I can't wait to wear them on my boat once once mean old Dr. Gray lets me go out on the boat again. Uh, but we really appreciate them. You can go to alukai.com slash fishnerds uh, to find out more. O-L-U-K-A-I.com slash fishnerds. And of course, we will put links in the show notes at fishnerds.com. And it really means a lot if you go and click through to their website 
uh, from ours because that means that we are having an impact. Another way you can help the Fish Nerds is by going to patreon.com slash fishnerds and help us fund our show. It really, really makes a difference. I've lost all my employment, as you've heard last week, and the only reason this job is still floating is because people have been going to patreon.com slash fishnerds and giving us you know, five bucks a month. And we're going to start doing a... Um, a special episode every month for our Patreon listeners. Uh, it may be a live show. It may be some extra stuff that they didn't use. Uh, in fact, in fact uh, for example, I'll give you an example. Just the other night, I interviewed some libertarians from the street, free, state, free State Movement. And, and I didn't, didn't love the interview, but you might. Uh, I didn't like it good enough to put on the actual podcast, but I got this great information that you might want to know about. Uh, I'm not a free stater or a libertarian, but I was interested in their point of view on some fisheries issues. Uh, I didn't like how the interview came out. They were nice enough to come on, and I have some good audio enough, and so I'm going to put that on a Patreon-only feed. So if you want to get that extra material, patreon.com slash fishnerds for that. Now, without further ado, we're going to jump into the meat of the show, and we have Rich Ross, who is a cephalopod expert on the show tonight. He, I found, I first heard him on Penn Gillette's podcast, which was called uh, Penn's Sunday School, and I heard him on there, uh, gosh, it must have been like six or seven years ago, talking about giant squid sperm, and I thought, this is my kind of human. I like him. And then I learned he was a juggler, and then I bumped into the amazing James Frank, who also uh, has a lot of good content in his brain and also is a juggler. And I used to be a juggler. So I thought, oh my gosh, perfect. Your chocolate's in my peanut butter. Uh, and, and then even better than that, I was hanging out with Rhett Talbot up in Maine one day and I was talking to him and he says, I asked him questions about squids. And he goes, let me text my friend, uh, <laughs> Rich Ross. And I went, you're friends with Rich? Rich Ross? So we, you know, I was not friends with Rich at this point. And then next thing you know, we're friends. Uh, and he came on the show. And so that's kind of the history. I'm a huge fan of his work. Now, Rich makes a a podcast called The Skim Mates. And so I thought having podcasters on my show, I get the best audio anyone can get. Turns out quarantine at home means he's not in a studio with his good equipment. So I had to get him recording on his iPhone, which makes me want to punch people in the throat. And then the amazing James calls him using the onboard microphone on his computer. You're a podcaster. Let's get this right next time. But anyway, I forgive you guys. I still love you. And next time you come on my show, get a freaking microphone. But the content's good. Have a great time with this, you guys. I had a great time. And we'll be back again. I, I'm so excited because right. it turns out that James lives literally five minutes from me. And uh, I've been looking for people to juggle with. That I've been even thinking about going over to the Rhythmics and telling them I'll do a, oh, yeah. I'll do a night where I'll, an open juggling night. Um, oh, let's so, but it might be more fun just to come over to Crab Cove and juggle. Right, Except just do it on the lawn right here. I mean, that's what I do. So, yeah. uh, in the winter when it's sixty yeah. degrees outside in California, no one else don't come here. That sounds everyone like a else in the Northeast stay where you no, are. Let me ask you a question: <laughs> Is, if, you're, if you're juggling, if you're juggling and you're passing clubs six feet away from each other, are you socially distancing? No. Or what, what kind of no? Because you're passing what germs kind of on the clubs. Equipment you have to have. On your hands, I guess gloves. Gloves. Gloves would do it. Yeah, but the clubs are spinning. Yeah, so they're shooting. I think it'd be cool if we juggled bottles of Purell. That's uh, as, we could juggle open bottles of Purell with them spinning, and then we could light them on as fire. As soon as people aren't sheltering in place, someone's doing that. The first street show after this will have someone <laughs> juggling Purell. 
Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, San Francisco is right across the bay. We could just go and make our next million. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm, I'm, I totally made a million when I was juggling in San Francisco. It was great. Not. No, no, no. Rich. No, no. Rich, did you did you do street performing? Yeah, I did street performing. Started street performing, and then uh, well, as a solo act, and then filled in for John Park in the American Dream comedy team, and worked with Scotty Meltzer. And then John was moving, and Scotty and I worked well together. And so I stepped into that, and we did shows for fifteen years, twelve, fifteen years, something like that. And we. When you were street performing, did you have a go-to line for like handling the There was a bunch of go-to lines. It all depends on <laughs> the context and what the hecklers are doing and, and what the context of the show is, right? If it's a... Okay, Clay's a really good heckler. I'm going to let him heckle you and you're going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to... I, I've never heckled a performer. <laughs> oh, come on, no, Clay. I, I know because you I've been on stage. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> no chance I could do that to anybody. You can talk. You can talk shit, Clay. I know you can. Contact. I don't think I can just do it. <laughs> the best hecklers are the ones that think they're helping the show. Oh, God. And you're like, please, <laughs> please stop helping. Please stop helping. So we did a bunch of street shows and comedy clubs and then we ended up doing a lot of corporate work which is way more money, but decidedly less fun. Corporate juggling. That's a thing. Yeah. So we started doing, you know, like um, breakout sessions or after dinner shows. And then we're asked to do a trade show. And the trade show is where a lot of the work came in, a lot of the repeat work and a lot of the money. And so it was great. Uh, but, you know, we did that for seven years, eight years. After seven years of eight years of, performing one show, rehearsing the next week's show, writing the week's show after that, and doing the, you know, the initial consultation for the show after that, um, it gets tiring. I mean, it sounds stupid because it's like that's a lot of work and it's good work and it's great money, or it was great money. It's not anymore. Thank you, 2008. Um, now it's just good money. Um <laughs> But that, that, that got tiring, and I was away from home all the time, and it was, it was a lot. I mean, it was great, but it was a lot. It was really fun while I was doing it. You know, we opened for, you know, Tanya Tucker and uh, Sawyer Brown and uh, uh, the Smothers Brothers and John Mellencamp. And, Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, an opening for the Smothers Brothers Stop. is kind of like, oh, we're, we'll just... I'll just quit now because we're hanging out with the Smothers Brothers and Weird Al Yankovic. It's like, oh, oh. we're done. We're done. And they don't need you. No, but they hired us. <laughs> yeah. We opened for Weird Al twice. He was really. Oh, man, I love Weird Al. Mm. Yeah, that's so cool. He was really nice. And so were the so Smothers me, Brothers. I'm sure they were. Now, I have a question because you, you mentioned all these country artists you opened for. Is that common to hire jugglers for country artist openers? Is that normal? There's a lot of fairs. <laughs> uh <-huh>. And fairs <laughs> tend to connect you with country singers. Mm -hmm. That's Is that true? Let's see. Tanya Tucker, we did twice for her, and that was at fairs. Sawyer Brown was at a fair. News, news, fish in the It worked out really good. All right. This is a true story. This is a few years old, but I like the story. This is uh, from the sun.co.uk. And the headline is Squid Shock Horror 
Woman's tongue becomes pregnant after eating squid sperm in raw calamari. A uh, woman from South Korea was left <laughs> in severe pain. Sperm was squirted into her tongue as she ate seafood. That's the headline. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this was not a lie, though. <laughs> yeah, a 63-year-old woman's tongue became pregnant after sperm from a raw squid she was eating end up in her mouth, according to Medical Journal. So yeah, it's except it, it, no, it, no one became pregnant. There's, yeah, there's, there's, that's ridiculous. But her tongue but, had uh, babies. Her tongue had babies. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would that even? Tongue babies. Tongue babies. Is <laughs> like like spiders coming out of a a mass of spiders? I would tongue baby. That's the, tongue babies. That's where squid uh-huh. comes from. Okay. Yeah, the woman from South Korea was severe pain after squid injected sperm into the tissue of her mouth, and she was rushed to the hospital. Doctors took a look inside her mouth and made the stomach churning discovery of twelve s- small white spindle shaped bug like sperm bags yep. embedded in her tongue and gums. The doctors knew they were sperm bags. They, they, they saw spermatophores and were like, that's a squid sperm. Is that how well, it went down? Rich, what I, do you think? I, I was there when it happened. <laughs> and um, they called you, didn't they? And I said, those are sperm bags. <laughs> what is a sperm bag? That's the technical term. What is a sperm bag? Yeah. Wait, what was this news source of yours? The sun. I'm sorry. What? Oh, there's a paper what on sun? this. There's actually a couple of papers on this. This is not yeah. a one-off. This happens from time to time. But it's well, not, it's, it's a fresh and not cooked very well or might be raw. And you bite into the right place, you can make the spermatophores trigger. And in some squid, that's kind of like a um, spring-loaded delivery. <laughs> so wow. she bit, mostly it was in her gums. I think there was some in their tongue, but it was mostly in the gums. Uh, and th- this thing that's packed with sperm shoot out and jams into whatever tissue is there what is and what in is, this case it was the, her gums so so tell me about squid sperm i want to hear more about this so the the i, I gotta know like the structure of the sperm like what is it about it that makes it penetrate tissues like what is uh, the the sperm is in this thing called spermatophore mm-hmm. and the sperms are all coiled up in there so what happens is this because squids are assholes um yeah. <laughs> some of them i want to really at, like like there's some um, and and you're going to get this this we're going to give all this a 63 percent chance of being completely accurate yeah. there uh, that's good you will find you will you won't find somebody will find somebody has found uh spermatophores in weird places on squids Mm-hmm. You know, in areas that have nothing to do with reproduction. And that's from this weird mating thing and, and how these spermatophores are delivered. So it's, it, and they come in different shapes, thing on the animal, you know, the, the cephalopod, but they, they jam in so they can't be gotten rid of. And uh, so they jam into flesh. So you'll find it in the flesh of the squid, not just near the reproductive organs. Now, do they like work their way through the flesh to find no a way to get pregnant, or they stick in wherever they land? They stick in wherever they land. Uh, it, we we assume that those are accidents, and uh, God, it would be so funny if that's how it happened. It's just like wait, let's talk about wait, squid. But I got more questions. This is you're going too fast. So when <laughs> when when 
when a mom and dad squid love each other very much and they get together, yeah, right? And they, they after dinner, they have a glass of wine. And then what, how do they mate? Everyone, it seems, wants to get Like, how, that's does a, squid, how does that's a squid a, do it? We'll have to go. Yeah, I've seen yeah. Japanese squid porn. We're going to have um, to go back a step because there's, okay. um, you, of <laughs> course, you've seen Japanese squid. <laughs> Research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they don't, they don't each other very much at all. <laughs> now tell me how they do it. How they know. do it. Uh, Quickly and violently, they're generally not friends. <laughs> oh, so. And uh, they, so squids have eight arms and two tentacles. Mm-hmm. The difference between an arm and a tentacle is that generally the arms have suckers up and down higher lengths, mm-hmm. and tentacles are smooth except for. The particular club, which has got hooks and, and 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 suckers on it, and suckers that have got teeth on them, and they're just a vicious predator with all kinds of crazy stuff. A nautilus has tentacles as well. They have like ninety of them, uh, but they're very different because nautilus are weird. Mm-hmm. So, and the octopus have eight arms as well, no tentacles, and cuttlefish have eight arms and two tentacles. How? The sexing works <laughs> is the male cephalopod has a modified arm, and it's mm-hmm. the if you're looking from the top, it's the third arm on the right. But that's a detail no one cares about. Um, that's where it <laughs> I is, care. and it's a groove that runs along the entire arm that ends in a ligula, and the ligula actually has erectile tissue on it and the ligula helps place the spermatophore in the place where the male wants it to be right so hang on so the scientific name for that arm is the boner arm the boner arm right? the, the boner, boner arm. arm okay i'm just yes. i want to make sure i'm keeping up huh yeah 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 <laughs> some, right, some, i would just like to point out here that like i just learned a new word ligula <laughs> Like now, when I was in when I was in college and we were taking invertebrate zoology, we did the dissection of the uh, oyster, which was the part that I remember most, and the part that was passed around the lab, sort of as a joke, was the labial palp. Oh, do you know what a labial palp is? I've got two of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> please tell us about the labial palp. Well, it's the part of, of any bivalve that actually sorts, and I could be They're wrong. They're all bivalves in college. Explain but it my, best, it. my best way. It's the part of the, of the, like on the outside of the stomach that actually sorts out the 
good food that makes it go to the stomach and diverts and uh, gets rid of the pseudo feces, or at least like turns things into pseudo feces, which is another really cool Fake word. Poo. Fake poo, which is just like the stuff it doesn't want to eat. <laughs> Pretty neat. But the labial pap, we, we thought the word labial pap was so hilarious that we would just literally like flick them at each other across the lab. <laughs> Flicking the labial pap. <laughs> Wait, I'm right. I gotta write this down because we're on line. We got stuff to do. So, ligula is like the boner. Is the boner part of the arm? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, labial palps and ligulas. Those are totally interesting. And then at the other end, inside, there's a penis uh, that makes the spermatophore and puts it onto the groove which is called the hectocotylus. It's a hectocotylized arm. And that groove works through peristalsis and moves the sperm packet down the arm. The same way you swallow. Peristalsis, like, do you remember the Mr. Wizard episode where the girl sits up or goes upside down, like sort of does a headstand and she has to eat an apple? Yeah. Do you remember that? That's exactly it. So it's the same. So um, squid can do the money shot if they're upside down because of peristaltesis, the miracle of peristaltesis. Yeah, and so when (laughs) you want to know when squid mate, how they mate. So that's some technical stuff. They meet, squid generally mate um, beak to beak or face to face. And the male takes that third arm and wiggles it into the mantle cavity uh, to the reproductive area, we think. And Wait, did you say third the arm? The third arm on the right side, the hectocotylized arm. Oh, sorry. Got, okay. man. Come on. Yeah. And um, <laughs> puts the sperm packets in there. And uh, octopus do the same okay. thing. They don't mate all mate face-to-face like that. There's only the one that we did most of the research on the larger Pacific striped octopus that mates face-to-face like that. Most of the other time, the male octopus will be as far away from the female as possible, either holding on to her from the man, which is the bag at the top that people think of their head, but it's Uh not, it's their torso. Um, See, dream crusher. (laughs) And uh, they'll gently reach in. uh, And then some even mate really far apart. And with just the arm across to, to the female because um, sometimes in that species in particular the female will take um, autoerotic asphyxiation for the male or no just erotic asphyxiation there's no auto it's the female <laughs> choking the male and sometimes they choke him to death and then sometimes they eat him oh that's good and then there are wait how do you choke some <laughs> octopuses just choke write, them uh, write them down write them down James write them down yeah. Um, yeah. there are some species of octopus that actually sever the hectocotylized arm and it goes off and finds a female and impregnates the female that fertilizes the female well the arm all by itself has enough brain power to find the female get under the mantle deliver the sperm package there's different stories about that this is mostly we hear about this with the blanket octopus or the argonaut and there have been blanket octopuses found with uh, three or four arms in there from different males. So it's unclear. Yeah, they're just a collector. Oh, and then they can choose the sperm. 
they totally can select the sperm they want to use. You probably, I, I don't know. This, this is another area that's not studied well enough. So I not quite sure what the female Argonaut does because they're so weird, right? For listeners who don't know, the Argonaut is called the paper Nautilus. It's an octopus and the female makes a shell that looks like an arc, like looks like a Nautilus's shell in shape, but is not. It's much safer. I mean, much softer. And um, they control the buoyancy of that shell by changing the size of the air bubble that's inside of it. What? How crazy is that? So much. <laughs> it's insane. Um, I know. So I, 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 I don't really. Well, that's, that's that's the essential way that a BC exactly a BCD works on a scuba dive. Yeah. Same exactly. So I, but we had no idea until a few years ago that that's how it was, how, how the buoyancy was dealt with. All right. But a chamber nautilus is different. How's a chamber nautilus? Chamber nautilus has a hard shell, and it's got different um, chambers in that shell. And I'm forgetting all the terminology on that, but they can pump gas out of the chambers to control their buoyancy. So isn't that essentially the same thing, though? Yeah, except one is a body that they control that with their body, and the other one is they're changing the size of an actual air bubble in a shell, right? Because the, 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 the Nautilus needs the shell to live. Without that shell, if you pull the Nautilus out of its shell, it dies. Um, but you can pull the Argonaut out of its paper Nautilus, and it will, it will still live. Yeah, so it's totally Here different physiology. What else? What else were you asking? That was like a long diatribe about. Oh, my other question was was um, how do you choke a squid? You reach in and you um, crush its esophagus, or you stop its. So you can cut off. It's actual choking, not strangling. Which is it? Choking? No, strangling. I should have said strangling. Right. Yeah, choking is stopping the flow of oxygen, and strangling is actually crushing down the is that right one it's one is the other yeah you choke on a hot dog and you strang you get strangled by right like, a murderer right you yeah. you get strangled a murderer is not push, pushing a hot you dog get strangled your by your secret lover no you get choked by your stroke by your secret lover and you get strangled by your spouse no no strangulation so choking okay. is like obstruction <laughs> So if you if you obstruct the esophagus, that's choking. Strangulation is crushing it. There we go. And I was yeah. being, I was making a terrible joke about that your spouse would want to kill you, yeah, whereas your sure lover true. wouldn't. And those of us uh, who are, are stuck with our spouses here now because of this, uh, uh, sequestering, we are finding this to be <laughs> true. So, <laughs> hey baby, let's play cephalopod tonight. Oh, yeah, I got the third arm. It's ready. It's on. <laughs> Wait, so are we doing fish in the this news is, still? Well, we're, we needed this we, as background we, to this lady with yeah. the, the, with the spermatophores so, in her mouth. <laughs> right. How did she get the spermatophores in her mouth again? She chewed Eating on a undercooked of... squid. Yeah. 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 So I want to know. So, so these squids have these spermatophores. And the sperms are all very pointy and sharp. What's the evolutionary advantage to having that shape of a sperm? And do other animals also have that? Uh, well, it's a also? sperm packet. Yeah. Right. Packet. So the, the advantage is you can jam a bunch of sperm packets into her and then run away. 
Okay, so here you go, lady. Bye. And they're going to stay in her, right? That's what you, you don't, they, they can flush their mantles at well and, and rinse out sperm if they don't like you or they don't like their mate. So anything you can do to make it sticky and stay in there is less likely she'll be able to get rid of it. So they're barbed. Yeah, the, they're, they're, and there's glue. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there that people are researching now to see what applications they could have for us. So, but basically, they want to make sure the sperm stay in there and they get to spread the gene pool, which is exactly what animals do. Fascinating. Exactly. I thought so. And that was the story I first heard you tell. I think on Penn Sunday School back in 2012. <laughs> wow. And I and that's when I when I first heard you tell that story. I was like, I have to get this guy in the show. <laughs> so now it's been eight years, and finally, full circle. Yay! Thank hey, you. I did great <laughs> after that episode. I did a little research and seeing if I could find squid that would be fresh enough for it to happen. Mm -hmm. And to, I you? would, I would do it myself because that's uh, really stupid. And right. um, back then I liked really stupid. Now I'm liking really mm -hmm. stupid again, now that I quit my job. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't find any. It's, it's much easier, closer to the source. So could you go out and catch a squid out in the bay there and just do it? To take a bite Pro of them? Probably. Are there squid in the bay? They're, I don't know. What's going on with that? I mean, you know, I've caught a cabazon with a squid in its gut, um, but that was out by the by the uh, yeah. Gate Bridge. They're they're here, but they're, I don't think they come too far in. It's still an estuary. It's not quite yeah the ocean. And the squids that come up here, I mean, we have the Dory Toothus, which used to be Lolligo, the the market squid that's down. In Monterey more. I don't think we get them up here. That's where they go and mate like crazy. Uh, so I guess I could yeah. get down there and try to grab a male and do it. Um, but uh, the other squid we get up here is like the Humboldt squid, which is a big mean predator thing. But that's also that's also pretty rare, aren't they? Only on the only yeah. The I, I think usually? they slow down. They slow down. Yeah. They're not up north as much, and uh, so we'll see how that. A few years back, it was pretty. It was pretty crazy a few years back when they were catching them. Um, I, I was hearing about boats going out of Emeryville to uh, to go out for them, and people were bringing them yeah. like a dozen. Which I don't know what you do. Like those things are huge. What are they weigh? Like they 20 can, pounds? They can be six feet long. Something absurd. Yeah. Like what do you like if you catch even one? What do you do with yeah. it? Yeah. Very you, big calamari. You get some sperm packets. Yeah. <laughs> I have a I have a a, a Humboldt squid head. An alcohol in a bucket outside, and a bunch of beets <laughs> of from, a, from a fisherman guy I knew who would bring them to me. Um, and, and then I just never got around to being able to go out and go squid fishing. Right. And well, we should do that. Yeah, That's okay. something we need to yeah. do. That'd be and, great. And just a just Next a sidebar for all those fish nerds listening. Uh, Rich also managed to get married. So. <laughs> There's that. So, even though he's collecting squids and <laughs> she likes that. Happen. Yeah. She calls me her pet, her pet mad scientist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Jackpot. Thank you. So, <laughs> I agree. God, and she married me when I was a juggler. Oh, um, really? Wow. Wow. That's great. <laughs> That's see, there's hope for all of us nerds out there. Yes. So. Oh nerds God. are congratulations. Good. They are good. They do. Right. Well, nerds are who do things. Yes. You know, we're not the ones watching this, the TV and the sports all the time. We're 
playing and having fun. So let's do some more news here. Got some couple more stories here. Squids uh, this is from uh, Wired magazine. Squids is gene editing superpowers may unlock human cures. Researchers found that cephalopods, that the cephalopod is the only creature that can edit its RNA outside the nucleus. It's a tool that may help one day help genetic medicine. So, uh, gene yeah, that's, that's out of my realm of knowledge, uh, but it seems very promising. It may now, end up being my realm of knowledge in two years, but it is not now. Not now. Well, they say CRISPR-based technologies aim to cure human disease by altering the genetic code of the DNA, of our DNA, for nearly every animal on Earth. Any changes made to the DNA are transmitted from cell nucleus to messenger RNA to the cytoplasm and the part of the cell that's the part of the cell that makes the proteins. Uh, but one animal species, squid, used by bait as fishermen and as food by, by bigger sea creatures, has already figured out how to edit its gene code, genetic code, in a way that helps scientists working on gene editing and this has helped them with making drugs and treatments. And scientists at the Marine Biological Lab in which whole Massachusetts and their colleagues reported an unusual method of editing genes, and it has something to do with the squid's behavior in the ocean. It works by the massive tweaking of its nervous system. Uh, but the headline kind of implies that they are doing it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, you, don't read headlines. I mean, read headlines, but ignore them. I'm sorry, James, what? Here's an interesting thing that points out a little further down here. It's saying that... Um, they found that the RNA editing takes place in the squid's axon, and they have very long and large axons. So it seems like it's like an adaptation for the fact that it's got huge cells, and therefore it essentially says, editing your RNA outside the nucleus, the squid can potentially change protein function much closer to the body. Really cool, right? Uh, uh, they, they have huge axons, which makes them so attractive as an experimental animal. Right. And for those who, listeners who don't know what an axon is, that is a, a nerve cell, right? I thought it was a video game in the 80s. <laughs> I thought it was a <laughs> hair band. <laughs> no, but, but it's actually quite interesting. Um, what are the other animals that I can think of that have big uh, nerve cells? Like um, Aptasia? Isn't that? No, not, not Aptasia. The, um, what's that? Not Aptasia. Um, the uh, sea hair, California sea hair. Is used in a lot of experiments because they have huge nerves. Yeah, aplesia. 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 Yeah, is a totally. They're related to squids and octopus. Yeah. Are they? Cephalopods are mollusks. They're mollusks. That's right. They're mollusks. So they're they're. Gosh, you can tell. I didn't. I swear, I did not fail that invert. No. Well, you've got all that in your head bouncing around. It's got to get shaken out. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, serious. But um, do you remember? Did you see the the, the wash up of the California sea hairs at all years ago? Uh, I saw some of it. This was more south, wasn't it? Oh man, no, it was here. It was in the bay. Um, it was it was huge. And actually, if I can find one of the stories about it, it was when really was incredible. That? They were they were everywhere. That was like 2016, I want to say. And it's all related to basically just warm oh, water yeah, temperatures. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there were so darn many of them everywhere. I got a pretty good video I shared on YouTube of one that was out here in the bay, like right outside the back door. And um, had out of nowhere, like a little crab just sort of like scuttles out from between its, um, like from inside its mantle. It was unreal. Like this giant sea slug, like a foot long. And I'm just sitting there taking a video of it. And literally like this little tiny shore crab just like flips out and goes. Out of nowhere, it was like it was like a hitchhiker. Wow. It was so cool. 
but it actually made it made like international news because they were washing up on the shore and people thought they were actually human body parts. <laughs> um, they, they literally like they literally thought <clears throat> they were um, here CBS San Francisco return of the blob the big purple sea slugs wash ashore in East Bay and uh, in Alameda right here giant sea slugs have been washing up on some Bay Area beaches in unusual numbers this summer and some folks who aren't sure what the creatures are, are actually calling police thinking they've made a grisly discovery. <laughs> I, I literally had the park police were called for what they thought was a human liver washed up on the beach. Wow. That's, that's awesome. awesome. International news. That's awesome. Yeah, right up there with, right up there with, with, uh, what were they, what were they calling the penis worms? The penis worms. I forget the name of the fish, but, uh, the animal, but yeah, there's yeah. some kind of cucumber. Yeah. I see cucumbers are washing up a few. Lugworm. Lugworm or something. One of those. Yeah. Yeah, people are yeah, funny. Beaches, I love yeah, it. People are awesome. <laughs> and people yeah. in Alameda are, anyway. are the best, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like anything washes up on the beach, it's like totally unnatural and awful and um, and scary. Yeah, I can tell you all, all sorts of stories. Yeah. I kite yeah. out there a lot. And uh, if, if your kite hits the water, they will sometimes call the uh, emergency responders I, I i had emergency responders come out to me once and uh in the in the boat you know from the shore and they're like are you okay i'm like i'm standing <laughs> i'm not yeah. I'm the water standing. here is so shallow like yeah people don't know that like they just they don't realize that low tide you can walk out like yeah. a half mile right and the water is so shallow like it's like three feet deep the whole bay, on average, is only twelve feet deep, but it, but right against this mudflat area where we are, there's like no water whatsoever. So th- there have been like there was the reason why that's happening, and you yeah. you know this, you know about the history of the guy committing yeah. suicide. There was a guy who literally went out into the bay, walked out, and just sat in the water until he got hypothermia. It's a boring like, way to kill yourself. But he was, but he was, I know exactly. But he was for a long there. time. Like he wasn't for a long time. And police wouldn't go rescue him. Firefighters wouldn't go rescue him. No one had water training, which, you know, whichever side of the coin you're on, it's a reasonable thing for someone who's not trained in water rescue to not want to put themselves at risk. So, but it was really sad and it made a lot of like a big impression on the local community. And now anytime someone sees someone out in the water, that's just not moving or like in this case, a kite surfer who has their kite down in the water and they look like they're, you know, from a distance, maybe they're struggling or they're not getting their kite back. Exactly. I haven't been to the Bay Area since I was a kid. I lived on, lived on Treasure Island when I was little. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a Coast Guard base when I was a kid. And we used to go shark fishing in the Bay all the time. And then we would go to the beaches over in San Francisco. And I was afraid to go in the water because the first time I went swimming there, I went in the water and there was this huge shark washed up on the beach. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in the water. I, but I had no idea how shallow it was. But it was and it might have been not probably wasn't huge. I was fourth grader, so it might have been normal size shark. It was a shark. <laughs> it was a shark. I knew that. Sharks are scary to fourth graders. Wasn't going in. All right, we got one more story here. I think we need to talk about. This is really important. This is big news. This is from the Worcester uh, News.co.uk from England again. Um, and they've got a lot of strict uh, Puritan rules about porn there. The headline is, A Pershore Man Denies Having Octopus Porn. So a man has denied possessing extremely pornographic, extreme pornography featuring sex acts with a dog, two goats, a chicken, an octopus, and a horse. Uh, <laughs> Owen Good of... 
Where do you find this stuff? <laughs> I love the Google. Uh, <laughs> Owen Good of Desjardins Way, Pershore, denied two counts of possessing extreme pornography when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court in Tuesday. The 25-year-old, he's young for this, the 25-year-old says the images were sent to him via WhatsApp, and he did not know what they were until after they were uh, automatically saved to his messaging service. He denied possessing extreme pornography, five moving images, and a compilation of videos which portrayed an explicit, realistic way and unlikely, uh, likely to result in serious injury, uh, an offense alleged to have taken place. I'm, I'm curious what it looked like. Um, not that curious. <laughs> I'm not sure not that I'm curious. <laughs> He also denied a further account of possessing extreme pornography, uh, which portrayed uh, activity with uh, live animals, such as the octopus. So, curious about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm not allowed to talk about this because yeah. of the witness relocation stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they changed your accent and everything. Yeah. 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 Don't call yeah, me no, have, you know, You've spent a lot of time with octopuses. Um, do you ever like just think about them like, hey, you know what? Hey. Yeah. hey, girl. Quite the mantle you got there. <laughs> oh, man. Look at you changing colors, baby. Mm. I'm so yeah, lonely. Yeah. I'm just going to put Wrap your arms there. around me, baby. No, that's never. <laughs> I'm I am sure. Oh, man. I'm sure you've heard stories of people doing weird things with octopi. Yeah. Octopi. There's octopuses. Either one. <laughs> is, it, is it really? It's yeah. Well, it can be either. Oh. Or so it's a Greek word. Really? So technically, it should be octopodes. That's what I've been saying. Um, <laughs> but it's also octopuses is just the plural of that. That's of octopus. So that's fine. And then octopi is is Latin. But it turns out when you bring a word from another language into English, you're allowed to Latinize it. So. All of them are fine. If you call them octopodes, people will hit you. Um, but it's fun to say. It's so much fun to say. But, but yeah, octopuses is more, more technically proper than octopi. Yeah, Got on. it. Yeah, I've never, <laughs> I've never wanted to have sex with them. Uh, no, me either. But you know, I've seen some because I've been in animals for so long. I'm sorry, involved with animals. Given the <laughs> phraseology matters, um, yeah. because I've been involved with animals, uh, I get and and a performer, I end up getting a lot of weird crap sent to me in the email, and uh, people do weird sex stuff with all kinds of animals, yeah, yeah, but loaches and botias and wow, which I would always think those would be sticky. They have they have sticky fins. It's like wow, you better put them in the right way because i don't want to know you oh, so want to know no i really don't that sounds um, i i'm mike and that happens with octopus a lot and i think people don't think about the re they think about the one way directional they don't think about removing things after you know yeah, yeah. wow <laughs> wow that's this is totally yeah. up there okay <laughs> i'm just I, i'm just saying you know. <laughs> well that was Fish in the News. I hope you everybody enjoyed that. <laughs> I'll take this opportunity to, to address one or two other popular news things about cephalopods. Oh, please. please. Um, they're not aliens. The scientists didn't really say they were alien. There, that's another headline problem. They're not I aliens. All the time. 
They yeah. just have crazy ass DNA. And uh that they can manipulate on purpose. On purpose, it seems yeah. like. There was one <laughs> other one I've forgotten it now. Well that's a that's R- a lame RNA as well. Well they the the common my daughter says she won't eat octopuses because they they appear smart to her. Does Okay, well, plan on a second. I okay. have something about this. Have you been to um, what's the restaurant over at South Shore Center? Uh, the really famous Italian one, the uh, uh, Italian Chiboco. One. Chiboco. Have you had his octopus dish uh, that he makes? He makes an octopus, like roasted octopus I and potatoes. I haven't because I've been pretty plant based for the last four or five years. Oh, uh, okay, okay. I um, <clears throat> I had never had octopus i'd say and someone suggested that if i wanted to try it that would be the one to try yeah. and it was it was good like it was actually it was actually very good i was impressed i thought it was going to be much more yeah. rubbery but the way he prepared it it was really nice and soft and, and good and then i got it in my head that i could do the same thing i mean as if i'm a professional chef right um and i got myself an octopus and um of questionable origin and because i think i bought it in chinatown and <clears throat> No, I got the, I got the, uh, there's the, um, the Latino grocery store that I go to over in Oakland every once in a while. Anyway, did not come out the same at all, like totally chewy. And in all honesty, it felt weird to eat it. Like, I, I don't know what it was about it. I mean, I've, I've, I've handled octopi, uh, sorry, oct- octopodes. <laughs> 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 multiple times um living ones and i took care of a couple in my aquarium years um but honestly like something about it just I, i'm there are very few foods that I'm not into. like i don't eat oysters i think oysters are gross I, it's just like one of the only foods that i won't eat what um but now i think octopus is joined that cook? list and i don't really did have you have a problem with the cooked one did you feel the same way or did you only feel the same way after your attempt um, I felt the same way with the one that was made in the restaurant to a degree. I was like, this is good, good enough to try to make, try it again and maybe even try mm-hmm. to make it myself. But, but there was just, after I made it myself, it was, it was a little like, I, I don't know if it was just the way I prepared it and I just didn't do a good enough job, but I feel the same way about oysters. Like it doesn't matter how they're prepared. Like fried is the only way I'll eat them. And even then I'm just kind of like, Ugh, but that's just, a, that you just don't like it. It's, that's there it is. It's not an ethical thing. <laughs> but it, no, but I think it's a but it's also like I don't know. It's it's going to sound weird but like yeah, I, I don't think of it as like a sentient being. Like obviously every animal I've eaten in my entire life was was a, you know, a living animal, yeah. right? But there's something about an octopus that for me like Ugh, I, don't, I don't know. It's not, it's not like I'm disgusted I, by it. It's like, I feel I, I can, bad. I think, I, I think Rich is on, on to something when he says you just didn't like it. <laughs> it sounds like you don't like octopus. It's like they taste okay. And that's about it. And you know, it tastes really good. Right, Everything yeah, else exactly, tastes maybe better. Maybe that's what it is. It's so, like, right. It yeah. tastes, it tastes okay. And therefore I'm not really willing to kill one to eat it. You know what I mean? It's not, it's nothing right. great as far as. The, yeah. You Cause you're I mean? not used to it. If you were raised eating them, you might have a different right. thought. The, the, now, if you were starving, yeah. yeah. The intelligence yeah. thing is. I mean, the, I house, I'm sorry. No, the intelligence ahead. thing is the one that's more interesting to me, um, because that's what people like to cite: is that I'm not going to eat it because it's smart. As they eat their pulled right. pork sandwich, you know, it's because well, pigs are smart. I right? think right. I think pigs are demonstrably smarter than octopus. 
So, and, and we know that the smarter the animal, the better they taste. That's right. That's, that's why. Uh, have you had the long pig at Traboco? No. What? You'll, you we, look up we, long pig first before, before you take this seriously. No, uh, long pig oh, okay. is what cannibals refer to as human meat is the oh, long God. pig. Oh. Oh, uh, I, I'm not entirely against that. Learning new things all the time. Yeah. So there, and on the intelligence, there was a, <clears throat> that's where I'm really a dream crusher because we don't know. I'm not saying they're not intelligent, but things like this make me crazy. There was an aquarium, an article about a public aquarium talking about their, their giant Pacific octopus that had the, uh, they said it had the intelligence of a six-year-old child. And, and, you know, at first it started as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, three-year-old. Now it's six-year-old. And I kind of I wrote to them and went, you're telling the public that you've got something as smart as a six-year-old child in a box for its whole life. <laughs> That's not going to work. Don't, don't, it's inaccurate, number one. And number two, don't, don't do that. Because if you had a puppy in a box for its whole life, people would be really angry. Well, and, and, and comparing human intelligence to animal intelligence is, it's weird. we are animals, but it just, it's such a different thing. It's, yeah. Now I'm yeah. not at all advocating bad care. You know, I think all care should be, you know, you took this animal out of the wild. It should, you should be responsible. You should be sustainable. You should make sure it's living its good life. Right. Well, uh, let me hang on. Let me, let me help you with something, Rich, because you just said something. You were talking about keeping a six-year-old in a box being bad form for the aquarium for marketing. What if they said, don't worry, it's dumb. We're going to keep it in a box for six years. Well, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, I think, that, well, now we're getting to the ethical part which is what my degree is in. So now you're screwed. Perfect. You have to listen to this. <laughs> um, and that's my the favorite articles I've written are on the ethics. So the ethics of fish in particular is bizarre, mm. given how we treat them as a society, right? So you get all these places, these charter boats, that when you come back, they nail your catch to a board uh, while it's kind of still alive, and then you stand under it and take pictures. So if you can do that, I, I think we're on not good ethical ground talking about that, you know, that fish, you know, needs five feet of swimming room. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird place. It's a weird place. Now, I absolutely think that, you know, any fish you keep should be ethically kept. You shouldn't get a giant fish for a tiny tank. But at the same time, given that it's okay to pull a fish out of the water and throw it on the deck and let it exsanguate by itself, no one blinks an eye. I certainly have no problem feeding fish to other fish. So Fair enough. <laughs> right. I mean, if, if it's being used for food, I get that. I mean, I try to dispatch my catch as quickly as I can. Um, you know, the, the, the problem I have as an educator is, like, I learned how to keep fish as a kid. And, of course, like, anyone who does that is going to kill an animal. Like, I guarantee you, everyone who's kept a fish has flushed one down the drain, right? Um, more than one, I'm sure. But 
I, I have a hard time with being where I am in my career as an educator who wants to encourage people to learn about this stuff, but has to also say like, Hey, respect the animals. And how do you, like, how do you mitigate that? How do you, how do you balance the, like, you can't learn about it without hands-on activity and you can't have the hands activity, hands-on activity with, without some negative consequence. You know what I mean? Like we, like one of my, one of the hardest things about my job right now is that the state regulates um, just so heavily on, on use of things like seine nets, even for educational purposes. Like as a kid, I used to, growing up on the North Shore of Long Island, I would go out swimming in the, in the, in the Long Island Sound or, you know, taking out a, a you know, big like six or eight foot seine net. I remember like, I remember just taking it whenever I wanted to and going through the marshes and picking up all the stuff, you know, like holding eels and all this other stuff. But here I have to fill out, I have to fill out a permit. I have to submit it to the state two weeks in advance. I have to then report back after we've done the sea netting in the, in the bay here, what we caught, what we released. And it's all got to be, we actually have to explain how we're going to handle the animals, like with wet hands and, and keep them, you know, in the water as much as possible. So <clears throat> I struggle with the accessibility, or I guess in a sense, like lack of accessibility to the water that we're essentially instilling on this generation of people who is growing up like in this hands-off sort of atmosphere. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, struggle. it's a struggle. I want and it's super me. complicated, you know, because the, the, the Bay was in trouble and still in some trouble, but was in so much trouble for so long that they want to right. make sure everything's okay. But at the same time, you can get a fishing permit and kill whatever the hell you want. Um, so it's a weird thing. And, and then you look at how our society treats animals in general. And, and so, you know, saying protect this animal, now let's go to the store and kill a chicken. It's, it's, it's a, you go to stores and kill chickens? Yeah, you should come out to the Bay Area. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true, actually. He's oh, not kidding. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Two places. Um, wow! I know one place that'll do it for you, but I mean, but that's all <laughs> all of our food. So it's it's weird. So I think how do we do it? Is we keep talking about it is the only thing I can think doing. I, you know, uh, the the other part yeah. is I think people need to be responsible when they get animals as pets or when they're going out to same. So I think it's important that people yeah. be careful right. and treat the animals well. Right. And I think when you Right. get a pet you better have done your damn you know learning Almost, yeah. and so it minimizes right. the chances i also think nowadays people right. with pet fish you know you should be doing your first year at least with captive bred animals right yeah that, uh, otherwise it's totally irresponsible well, the problem and i read i read your article on this you wrote you wrote back and forth with the oh, guy yeah. in england about Nathan. the ethics Thanks of the i just read that this morning and and it's fascinating. It's actually a really it's a really good back and forth. Um, but the argument that came up in that was who's responsible? Is it the is it the people that are buying the stuff, or is it the industry itself? You know, I was I was even going to go and start like growing corals in the Philippines as a way to sort of mitigate the the like farmed corals or try to try to get farm corals back into the system instead of instead of wild stuff. Um, that fell through. It's a whole other story. But the whole thing is is like. Yeah, like how do you how do you sell things to people 
you know, it's like, it's like Petco. I actually can't stand going to Petco as an experienced aquarist. It drives me nuts. Every time I go in there, well, do you know that you can't mix this fish with that fish? And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, like the meanness inside was five, right? Like, thanks. I'll take the betta. It's a female. It's not going to beat up on my, you know, my other female betta, you know? Um, <clears throat> Like I've bred bettas, have you? Yeah. <laughs> like, like a few, but I don't want to be the jerk. Yeah, you need a that. shirt that says "Don't you know who I am?" But um, but that's the thing. Like I, I hate going there because it's just it's very beginner. They do a good job of making sure, as far as I know, a lot of their stuff, if not all of it, is probably tank raised. Um, you know, and I know certain places that that focus on. Them. But then, you know, there's other places where where you know that they're getting wild stuff and and. You know, that's a whole, I'd hate to be, I, I worked at one of those places that got wild stuff and that was back. You know, yeah, we can, and we could do a whole hour on collection and techniques right. and yeah. stuff. We need to get to the end here pretty soon. What? Oh, I know, but yeah, I know, but that means um, we're coming back to do that hour. We have to, but I do want to say my favorite way to catch fish is, is a cyanide and that's how I do it, but that's me. So, <laughs> Dynamite's Dynamite, good. so. Yeah. I like just uh, diverting all the water permanently. And letting them just dry out. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, that's good. Divert it to the cities that have none. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fishers when you should have been fishing. Special thanks to Rich Ross from the Skimmate or Skimate podcast. Uh, the amazing James. I don't know what you do. Wally Pleasant our theme music. Diana's bad songs for our news music. And, uh, Anyone who listened to this, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so until next time, follow the code of fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings swim attached. against the current. Any chance you get. Every chance you, you did get. It. You guys made a fish nerds podcast. Thanks. <laughs> Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets. Fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast, just for the hell of it, fried in a basket or broiled in a pan, eat it raw like you're in Siam, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. everybody it's crappie hippie your tree hugging redneck from eastern kansas and i am so excited tonight we're introducing a new feature on the fish nerds podcast uh we've got the pond lady with us tonight amy robeson i don't know if you remember episode 226 where i interviewed amy I wanted to do a segment on pond management, and as she and I had been friends on Instagram for quite some time, I asked her to come on the show, and guess what? She got bit by the bug. She's totally infected. Uh-oh, is that politically incorrect to say right now? Anyhow, she's a fish nerd for life, and she actually wanted to start submitting content, and of course, I encouraged her to submit content, so... 
get ready uh, to listen to her first segment. Um, we're going to have contact information for Robeson Outdoor Solutions down in the show notes if you want to get hold of Amy, or you can get hold of her on Instagram at the Pond Lady. All righty, let's get ready to listen to some advice on how to start a pond from Amy Robeson, the Pond Lady. Welcome to The Pond Lady with your host, Oklahoma native Amy Robinson. The Pond Lady is an informational fish nerd series about pond management and how to conserve, enhance, and enjoy your private ecosystems. Brought to you by Robeson Outdoor Solutions. Robeson Outdoor Solutions consults on pond management, wildlife enhancement, habitat preservation, and animal removal from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And now... The Pond Lady. Hello, this is Amy Robison, the Pond Lady, coming to you from Oklahoma. Our friend John King, the lead-free crusader himself, asked me to record a segment for the show, and while we were discussing some potential topics, he asked me, when do you stock your ponds in spring? This, of course, led to quite a few other questions. So, to wrangle me in, he developed a scenario and a challenge. He asked me to give you the Pond Lady's top five rules for stocking a new pond and a brief scenario to outline each of these rules. Here is our scenario. A young married couple probably millennials, have a son and a daughter that are in grade school. They've all lived in the city their entire lives. Now they want to get back to nature. So they've purchased a piece of property that has a creek arm on it. They know that their property is big enough to allow them to create a three acre pond by damming up this creek drainage. They also know that the average depth of the pond is approximately four feet with two deeper holes that are approximately 10 feet. They have a sandy beach for swimming and a floating dock for fishing. So the pond itself has been full since fall and now the couple would like to stock it for fish for angling opportunities throughout the year. Now, where does this couple begin? This is where the Pond Lady's five rules for stocking could come in handy. So, rule number one, species selection. Now, as you all know, I am in Oklahoma, and that's really what I'm comfortable with talking about. Species selection is largely going to vary based on your region of the country. But for our purposes, let's say this couple wants to put largemouth bass, bluegill, and channel catfish in their pond. This is a relatively tried and true combination as far as Oklahoma ponds are concerned, so there's really nothing that raises any kind of flags with this particular stocking regime. Okay, that actually brings me to rule number two. Based on the species that you've selected for your pond, do you have the right habitat? So we know based on the size and characteristics of this pond that there are probably quite a few different habitat types in it. A common habitat enhancement, especially for ponds in Oklahoma, is the addition of cut cedar trees. 
Now, eastern red cedars are becoming a nuisance species, even though they're native. So removing nuisance cedar trees and sinking them into farm ponds is a quick and cheap way to increase the habitat variety that you have. Okay, so we've talked about the types of species you want in the pond, and we've determined that you have the appropriate habitat types available. So the next rule is this. Determine the stocking density of the pond. Now traditionally, stocking rates were determined by developing a number of fish to stock per acre. However, depending on the size or ranges of sizes of fish that are available to stock, the total weight per number of fish may vary a little or a lot. For example, a 103-inch bluegill may weigh significantly less than a 105-inch bluegill. By stocking your pond based on the total weight of fish, you are more carefully calculating for the carrying capacity of your pond and are therefore less likely to exceed it. Another factor about stocking density that I think is important relates to the actual stage at which you get your fish for stocking. So traditionally, new ponds were always started with either fry or fingerlings that you stock at a very high rate with the assumption that there's going to be a percentage of those fish that are naturally going to die as soon as they're stocked in the pond or very quickly after that. Of course, if this assumption is somehow broken by, say, having all of the fingerlings or fry that were stocked somehow survive, there is a chance that you could have potentially overstocked your pond right out of the gate. When sourcing fish, we always prefer to choose fewer, larger individuals to stock rather than more smaller individuals. This is with the understanding that larger fish have a greater ability to survive the stocking event and therefore become a breeding member of the population in that pond. Okay, now that we have determined the species we want at what density and we have the right habitat types, the next factor which is my fourth rule of stocking, would be timing. The correct timing of stocking events can be make or break for a pond. For example, we would never want to stock a predator fish into a pond before it has had time to develop a forage base. This means that in the scenario outlined where we want to stock bluegill, largemouth bass, and channel catfish, we would most likely want to stock our bluegill in the fall as soon as there is a developed invertebrate community and then stock our largemouth bass in the spring or if we need to wait to stock our bluegill till the spring, we would want to wait until late summer or fall to stock our largemouth bass. The channel catfish in our example can either be stocked in the fall, spring, or summer depending on their availability and the literature still suggests that they will need to be periodically restocked as most ponds may not have sufficient spawning habitat for reproduction. Okay, 
So now that we have selected our species, we know that there are the appropriate habitat types available, we know at what rate to stock each species and at what time, the last rule of stocking fish is to source fish from a reputable vendor. I can't stress this enough. The quality of the fish you stock in your pond will very likely affect the success of your fishery as it develops. Sometimes the biggest vendor in your area may not necessarily produce the best quality of fish. Sometimes hatcheries can even have issues with parasites that you can potentially introduce to your own pond that can be very difficult, if not impossible, to eradicate or control. There is also a chance that some vendors or hatcheries could potentially try to sell you more fish of one species or more species than your pond can actually sustain. This can lead to problems all on their own. So briefly, the pond lady's top five rules for stocking a pond are to select the right species, make sure you have the right habitat types available, make sure that you stock at the right densities at the right times, and that you source from a reputable vendor or hatchery. If you want more information or clarification about anything I've mentioned here, be sure to contact me or get in touch with your state's fish and game agency and speak to a fisheries biologist directly. That's all for the Pond Lady for now. Stay safe and healthy out there. And that concludes tonight's Fish Nerd segment, The Pond Lady with host Amy Robeson. This is generic in-house announcer IP Freely imploring everyone to join the fight to protect and defend our dwindling natural areas. Good night and happy angling.